Greetings, church. This is Pastor Scott bringing you a message today called The Reality of Suffering from Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Gracious God, thank you for these moments. We pray that you open up the text and open up our lives to receive all that you have to give us. In your name we pray. Amen. Our message today is called The Reality of Suffering. And as I prep to bring this message to you today, I just, I just would be honest with you that this is a hard one for me. This is a hard day to preach this. It's a hard message to prep because this story is personal. I've shared before, and I don't plan to share too much of the details of the loss of my son ten and a half years ago. I've shared pretty widely about him, Fisher Samuel's son. Um, and the pain of that day doesn't go away, particularly as we approach his birthday in December. Uh, the pain of that loss still stings a great deal. So this is a hard one, um, but uh, it's a true word that I want to share with you. This is absolute core theology for me. And I want to say these two different things to you today. I have these two goals. First, I want to honor your pain. I want to um, honor your suffering. I want to honor your grief. I want you to feel like those of you that are in absolute valleys of despair and hurt and pain, that you're not alone, that that. Christ sees you and that that pain and suffering is real. We'll just full stop to the end of that sentence. I see you and we honor your pain and I'm sorry for how you've suffered. And I want to say a second thing to you. I want to say this thing that hope is possible, that, that, that your pain can give birth to something that will look more hopeful in the future, that it can come out of you. That, that, like Ezekiel said, that dry bones will come alive by the Spirit of God. And, and I recognize that these two things almost seem impossible to hold together. These things almost seem like mutually exclusive one to another. But today, through Psalm 23 in this message, I, I would just hope that we could watch, that we could watch out for how, um, through honoring your pain, hope would still be possible. And that you would walk with me along this precarious ledge. And that you would trust me, because as your pastor, I want to be good to you. This thing of holding hope in the midst of suffering is absolutely one of the most challenging aspects of being alive. And it's a personal one for me. Ten and a half years ago when we lost our son, in those days and weeks that followed where it was just like darkness just fell over our house and our, our, our hearts were just ripped from our chest. My wife was grieving. My, my kids uh, who were already alive were grieving. It was just, it was the worst time of my life. And in that season, my wife got invited out to a girls' night of some, some neighborhood friends. And, and she just said, Scott, I just want to get dressed up and feel alive again. And so she went out for this, for this evening and around the dinner table that night, you know, making small talk and chit chat with some fairly distant friends. One of the women just turned and looked at my wife and said, Heather, do you still believe in God? 
my wife swallowed and tried not to you know, throw up what she was eating to that point. And she said, yes. The woman turned back to her. These are mostly non-Christian women sitting around this table. And she just said, I don't think I could believe anymore if I went through what you went through. And Heather said patiently, my faith is the only thing that's getting me through this time. And even though I'm hurting, God's love is mysteriously bigger than ever in this season. Wow, that's faith. A woman who had recently like, lost everything with the loss of a child, still clinging to hope. Reconciling, church, reconciling the reality of suffering with the goodness of God, the reality of suffering with the goodness of God, reconciling these two things is one of the most challenging aspects of our faith life. But it's only by embracing the reality of suffering and the tension within the declaration of an all-powerful God that we'll be able to be people of faith and hope in our fallen world. Now, there's a danger to many while we grieve that either God wasn't powerful enough to protect us or wasn't loving enough to try. I mean, ouch, but that's the reality when people suffer. And so this distortion starts to emerge in community. The distortion is that, that somehow Christians must be immune to suffering or, or their God's not powerful, and that's just not true. And so when we suffer, when we, when we grieve, many people's faith starts to crumble. And there's another distortion that, that happens that the Christian church doesn't know how to lament, doesn't know how to hold pain. And so today I have this message I'm bringing you that Christ is our companion through darkness and we need a faith that has two hands but one hope. Two hands but one hope. What do I mean? On one hand, we will suffer at times just an insufferable grief that part of being alive at times is to hurt and many of us in the room know this firsthand. On one hand, we will grieve and on the other hand, God is a good God, a loving Father. And so this faith of two hands but one hope, how do we carry both? We'll sit in that tension today. We will normalize pain but we will declare unapologetically that hope is alive. And that when suffering happens, God promises us his presence and that hope can spring from lament. Let's get started with this. The reality of suffering. The reality of suffering in this world. I mean, all I would need to do, literally, I could come up and give this message each and every Sunday, the reality of suffering. And just by way of illustration, I could just open up the Sunday paper and just read to you everything that happened in our community this week. So, so this week, as I prep this message, darkness is real and all around. A school shooting in a neighborhood that Heather and I used to do ministry at in California. Three kids shot, one died, members of the same church, very similar to Bethany Community Church, school shooting. How about this? Another thing, a pastor in Tacoma who took his own life. He was a classmate of mine from seminary. Who, who is in the profession of bringing hope to hopeless people, but he himself, a sufferer of PTSD, succumbed to suicide. So yeah, darkness is real, and there's a reality of suffering. 
And yet there's this tension for us because for people that have believed in God, you know, we read in the scriptures that there is this, this distortion from this theology that if we follow God, we would be blessed. And sure, evangelical Christianity kind of told that story and beat that drum. But even in the text, the scriptures, Deuteronomy 28, listen to what Deuteronomy 28 says. This is the old covenant that if we follow God, we won't suffer, that we won't go through dark times. Deuteronomy 28 says this, if you fully obey the Lord your God and you carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Well, what are the blessings? Deuteronomy 28.3, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Deuteronomy 28.4, the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. Deuteronomy 28.5, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. Deuteronomy 28.6, you'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Deuteronomy 28.7, the Lord will grant that the enemies who rise against you will be defeated. Like, this is what we read in Scripture. And this is what the church has picked up, that faith leads to prosperity. And then when it doesn't, because it won't, it leads to shame. It leads to anger and denial and blame and depression. And so we need a new theology. We need a theology that says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd even when I walk through the valley. And if you need some context for Psalm 23, pick up and read Psalm 22, where Jesus himself would later quote on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out today, but you do not answer. That's Psalm 22. So yeah, we walk through the valleys and the reality of suffering is true. The valley, the evil, the enemies, all over Psalm 23. Even though I walk the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil because you you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So even in Psalm 23, 4 and 5, you see valley, evil, enemies. So come on, like let's just acknowledge the fact that suffering is real. Evil will come our way. There will be valleys. Enemies will attack. And so this question arises for us as people of faith. Is God all-powerful or does he will us to suffer? Can life still be good through and in seasons of grief? And friends, I don't have easy answers for that one. I don't. I I love what Paul says in Corinthians where he says, right now we, we don't see God clearly. We see through a lens darkly. But then later in life when we see God face to face, will know clearly. There's so much we don't understand about the reality of suffering, about grief, about loss. But I, I just, I'll share an illustration that's ministered to me. I love the season of fall. It's my favorite season. And I drive around and I'm just flabbergasted at how beautiful fall is in Seattle. And I think it's really interesting, and I'm not a botanist, but just scientifically, what happens as the leaves change in the fall? Well, what's happening scientifically is the cooler days and the shorter nights, the chlorophyll in the tree leaves break down, where the chlorophyll is the green, and as the, as the green breaks down, the beauty, the other nutrients that are present in a tree leaf that's already there, the orange and the yellows and the reds, they start to come out from where they already exist. 
It says the chlorophyll breaks down, that the vitality of the colors of the leaf shine forth. And in this way, death of the leaf, the the chlorophyll process retreating back from the leaves, back into the trunk of the trees, that the death helps the beauty come to the surface. And in this way, there's something that's a truth for us, that death is a part of life and grief is real, period. The scriptures are full of death and pain and betrayal and loss. And it's just there. It is. And as your pastor, I'm sorry you're hurting. I wish you're not. But I want you to know the reality that God is for you. The scriptures are just full of of people crying out to God. Do you know between the Old and the New Testament, there's almost a dozen different words which means to cry out. By some count, this, this crying or crying out or, or, or lamenting that almost 500 times in the scriptures, there's just this truth that when you cry, God is close to you. When you cry, God even longs to carry you. This is a promise in Deuteronomy 1. God says, don't you remember I carried you? Deuteronomy 1, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. You know, right before we lost Fisher, somebody had shared with me one of these videos. There was this pastor at the time that was making these kind of inspirational videos, and someone shared with me this this video about this pastor carrying his son through a storm. It was very powerful, It was days before my son had died, and so I was just watching it like, huh, this might be interesting to share with somebody in grief someday. And I didn't even realize how God was kind of dropping little blessings for what was about to happen. In the video, the pastor was sharing how he doesn't, the kid is crying as they're walking in a storm, and the dad kind of is out on a hike, and then it starts to rain, and the dad kind of hurries back to the cabin, hurries back home, and as the son is wailing, the father, the pastor is sharing in this video that he's, he would do anything to bring his son home. The pastor says, for the last mile, I I held my son close to my heart and I kept saying, we're going to make it. Dad knows the way home. I love you, buddy. We're going to make it home. And that video was inspirational to me. And then when I lost my son, it felt like an absolute gift that as I walk through the reality of suffering, trying to hold strength for my wife and my kids who are alive, but having my own just stomach ripped out of me, that I I, I believed that God was real and that he was still present. And this is where the message changes. The second point I want to share with you is that God promises presence. Presence. In Psalm 23 This word, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd is a Hebrew word, ro'oi, which derives from this idea of God being my friend. Or as David is saying, the infinite God is also a personal relationship. And in this way, following God is not an aspect of how much religion can we ascribe to, but that of a personal relationship. God desires for us to be known. And so there's another distortion that has sprung up that prosperity gospel theologians kind of spread around that distorted that old covenant with Israel that we would be blessed much, 
that God will always bless us, always increase us, always give us the desires of our heart. It's a prayer of Jabez mentality where we're taking old stories in the Old Testament and and just putting them onto our life, that, that God will always provide for us. But the reality that God says in the scriptures, the promise is not of constant provision. The promise is presence. The promise of God is his presence for us. And if you don't believe me, then you open your Bible and you see that Abraham was called and then there's a famine in the land. David's called and he's running for his life from Saul and he later loses a baby. Moses feels called and he feels profound isolation in the desert. Rahab serves God's spies and the town under her feet is destroyed. Ruth and Naomi are widowed. And so hear me very carefully. God's favorite folks don't get to avoid suffering, but they have a friend in it. God never said we wouldn't hurt. Instead, he promised presence. And this is where our two-handed theology is very helpful. Isaiah 53, he was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you will prosper. How do we hold those things in tension? It's two hands, but one hope. We can have confidence that in pain, God is approachable and God is available. Or as God said of himself in Ezekiel 34, I myself will tend my sheep. I'll have them lie down. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I'll destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so may we be reminded that when we walk through the valley, God is present. And so I just want to get practical for a moment. Like how do we walk through dark valleys and how do we walk with people that we love? What are things we should say and not say? It's very important for me as your pastor, as a, somebody who has suffered and survived grief myself, that I educate you that we would be a congregation that learns how to hold space for pain and love people when they suffer. There's a great little children's book called Tear Soup. A Recipe for Healing After Loss. This is a wonderful resource if children are affected by grief or loss, but it's really true for any of us. It's amazing how a children's book can tell the story that pain is real and yet presence is available. In the story, there's a, there's a protagonist by the name of Grandy, and it says that Grandy suffered a big loss. Now, in the story, it doesn't tell what kind of loss Grandy suffered from, and I think that's important because sometimes when we suffer, we categorize our losses to be more than or less than each other. Whereas like, I lost an in utero baby, but you lost a two-year-old son, and so you must have felt more pain than me. Or my, my son was nine months, but if somebody loses a four-month-old in utero child, maybe it's less pain for me. It's actually not helpful at all. We're not meant to categorize our pain. We just pay attention to it. And so in this story, this woman, Grandy, suffers a big loss, but it, it says that she, she was able to make something beautiful in her pain. The writer says that it feels that grief is never clean, but to make matters wor- worse, grief always takes longer than anyone wants it to, and Grandy cried. And so in this story, Tear Soup, this old woman makes a soup, something that would end up nourishing her in her time of pain from her own suffering. 
And so I just want us to be a church that we know what to say and what not to say when people we love hurt. I just, I just, I'll start with this really simple. What's not to say when people hurt? Don't use cliches. Don't rush in with easy answers. Don't say God had it a plan. Don't offer any other quick fixes. Don't start any sentence, well, at least, dot, 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 and don't ever say what was my least favorite thing to hear. Maybe God needed another angel. And when people suffer, sometimes we can do great harm when we try to rush them through grief with little cliche and glib sayings. Don't do those things. But here's what you can do. Just show up. When people you know are suffering, just show up. Or as one of my friends said recently, just, sh- just show up and shut up. Like don't, don't fear saying the wrong thing so much you don't show up at all. Just come and be present. Don't forget about me if I'm suffering. Everybody loves a story of grief the first days or weeks, but often they forget as their own lives get busy. But stay present to me in my pain. Don't be scared to say my loved one's name. Help remember them. I know as a a father of a son who's passed away, I lament that my son Fisher will never be known in the world. So don't be scared to say the loved one's name. Honor me with your presence. Like sit Shiva with me. In ancient Israel, when, when somebody would suffer or go through grief, there was a process of sitting Shiva where people would just come and, and sit in the same room, maybe sit on the same couch for up to a week without even saying words, but just saying, I want to be here with you right now. And just remember, grief is never over. It just changes a bit. And so don't rush me. And may you know, church, when you're walking with people who suffer, there is power in presence. There's power in presence. And this is what God promised us. Not constant provision, but constant presence. And see, we're outcome-minded, where we we want a different outcome. But God is process-minded, He is present in each and everything in order that we would know him more fully. And how do I know that? We turn again to Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, the Lord is this third person in an entity. He's a shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me by side quiet waters. But then in verse 4, in the valley, something changes. And this is where I'm starting to kind of get excited because I want to share this with you. That in the valley, God's promise goes from third to second person. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. This is so profound, this change in pronoun, this intimacy in this conversation with God, where in the valley, the shepherd becomes the God of relationship because God gets our pain. God suffered too. God lost a son too. Jesus himself suffered in bodily form. Jesus suffered too. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Our God is a man of sorrows 
and an all-powerful Savior who raised people from the dead. We must live in this tension, this two-handed theology, one hope. God promised not constant provision, but never-ending presence. I was recently acquainted with a pastor in Bellingham, a, a new friend, Doug Bunnell, and Doug and Lori had a son, Zach. They had to take this journey, not of provision, but of presence, when Zach got a rare cancer at age 10. This cancer was so brutal and horrible that Zach, this healthy 10-year-old boy, lost his sight. And as the congregation to Pastor Doug's church, because Doug's a pastor too, as his congregation gathered to pray Christmas Eve, the entire congregation prayed for a miracle on Christmas Eve, and Zach passed away. Unbelievable. A pastor serving God, praying for a miracle on Christmas Eve, and Zach passes away? I talked to Doug this week on the phone, and he said, Scott, I'm still hurting, and I'm still hoping. Both things are true. This is amazing. This is the two-handed theology, one hope that I want to get us to, because what Doug shared with me is they would do anything to bring their son home, and they know that God has increased their capacity to love others. They have somehow been blessed. Their faith has somehow grown, even though they suffered. They're now chapels, chaplains, Doug and Lori are at camp side by side, where they go every summer and minister to families who have received cancer diagnosis for their children. And so from their pain, they have been enabled to, to receive unending grace and hope and share it with others. Unreal. There's the reality of suffering, and God's promised His presence. And this is where we'll end, that hope springs from authentic lament. Hope springs from authentic lament. We'll start where you always start, if from a place of authentic lament. When we as a church don't know how to hold space for lament or pain, when we rush through the scriptures where there's pain or crying, we miss the very depth of human experience because sometimes you can see light clearer in dark times. Psalm 34 says that from this place of authentic lament, we can understand God more. Psalm 34 says, God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So when we suffer, we somehow can identify with God even more. A theologian, uh, Nicholas Wolterstaff, lost his own son who was 25 years old and died in a climbing accident. And, and what came from that deep pain and lament from Wolterstaff was actually, he turned it into a book called Lament for a Son, which became his theological reflection on his son's death and of God's unending love. Walter Staff writes this. He says, For a long time I knew that God is not the impassive, unresponsive, unchanging being portrayed by the classical theologians. 
I knew of the pathos of God. I knew of God's response of delight and his response of displeasure. But strangely, his suffering I never saw before. He continues, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I've seen a suffering God. This is the great mystery to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness. The God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but he sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Wow. That's incredible. When I first shared this, I had a guy just, you know, afterwards say, I'd never thought about it, that God suffers too. And so church, we need to be better with pain and darkness. We need to trust and wait that in places of authentic lament is where God can reach us. And from the valleys, from the presence of enemies, from experiencing evil from these places is where hope springs because God is with us. God is leading us. He can use everything through the valleys. Surely, Psalm 23 says, love and mercy following us. What a picture that love and mercy aren't abandoned in the valley. They're following us through the valley. And even at the end, we're dwelling in safety with God himself. In Psalm 23, don't stop reading. Don't stop hoping. Don't stop crying out. We're heading home, friends. We're heading home. And some of us will be there soon. And some won't be there for a long time. But the reality is that our days are numbered. They're numbered. And there is a beauty of saying that even though life at times can be horrible and grief is real, hope never stops springing out. God will be so present to us. We're heading home. I got to do a home visit this week with a dear friend of mine from our church who's heading home, who's suffering from a disease that will end his life in the months ahead. He's heading home. And his wife is just this warrior who's caring for him and just this amazing, soft, loving woman she said, would you come over and serve communion to my husband? Oh, wow. And we came over and we visited and he can't speak anymore. So we just, we hugged and we held hands and kind of communicated back and forth with nonverbals. And, and I said, are you ready to receive communion? He nodded his head. And I served him the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I served him the blood of our Lord Jesus. And with communion on his lips, his lips quivering, he started to weep. Tears pouring down his face. Was it joy? Was it hope? Was it pain? Was it suffering? Was it loss? Yes, it was all of that. We're heading home. May we be a church of two hands, one hope. Suffering is real and God is present. The scriptures, though they're full of crying, they're also full of hope. 
And so some things that God wanted to me, to remind you of this morning, where he says in scriptures, God himself says, I will be found by you. I will restore you, that I will hold you. Deuteronomy 30, God, your God, will restore everything you lost. Jeremiah 30, I'll restore your health. I'll heal your wounds, declares the Lord. Joel 2, I'll restore the years that the locust has eaten. Literally, years ruined. Joel says, I will restore the grain, the oil, the wine. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied. You will overflow. And so for those hungry for hope this morning, may I speak in faith over you. In faith, may you cling to the truth that the life ahead will have a measure of fullness that you don't even understand now. Because God will be present to you. I want to leave for you this poem that's been a blessing for me. The poet Jan Richardson, herself a sufferer of grief who lost her husband much too early, wrote this poem, Blessing for the Brokenhearted. I want to share it with you now. Let us agree for now that we will not say the breaking makes us stronger or that it is better to have this pain than to have done without this love. Let us promise we will not tell ourselves time will heal the wound when every day our waking opens it anew. Perhaps for now it can be enough to simply marvel at the mystery of how a heart so broken can go on beating as if it were made for precisely this as if it knows the only cure for love is more of it, as if it sees the heart's soul remedy for breaking is to love still, as if it trusts that its own persistent pulse is the rhythm of a blessing we cannot begin to fathom, but will save us nonetheless. May you know hope that springs from authentic lament. Or as Jesus himself said in John 16, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And when we love others in their pain, may they see Christ in us. May we know that we're heading home. May we know the truth that hope springs from lament. The God has promised suffering, and though there is a reality of suffering, God says, I'll be there with you. I am holding you as a father holds his son. You know, when we lost Fisher in the days that followed were the very worst days of my life. At the time, my son was two and my daughter was four, and we sent them away to be with their grandparents because my wife's body was in recovery. Because though we left Fisher at the hospital and he had passed to be cremated, my wife's milk still came in. Her body was preparing to nourish a baby that we would never get to care for. Those are the worst days imaginable. And I woke on one of these mornings in the silence of our house in the pre-dawn gray of a December morning as my wife was sleeping, resting, healing in the bed above. My other kid's gone. The house just 
empty and silent. And at the time, I had just finished my first semester of seminary. See, I had said yes to a call on my life to be a pastor for our Lord Jesus Christ. I had started, though I was very busy running the business that I was working on, I'd started seminary, and it was finals week. The final exam was due for systematic theology. What do you think when you think about God? And of course, when the seminary heard that the baby had died, they reached out, you know, Scott, don't worry about finals and all that. Just don't worry about it. But there in that mid-December gray morning in our silent house, I opened my computer and it's like I just needed something to do. I don't know if you can relate with that. Sometimes when I'm really anxious, I just want to, you know, do something when I was really afraid. And so I sat there in my office. I had my computer open. My hands were on the keyboard and my final for systematic theology was before me with this question, What do you think when you think about God? I paused, hands unable to type. What do I think about God when I just lost our baby? When everybody I love and am supposed to care for is falling apart? When I'll never be able to nourish this son of mine? What do I think? sat there, hands unmoving. And then I wrote these words, and I'd like to share them with you today. I started my systematic final with these words. I still believe. I still believe in a loving Father God. I still believe in the Son Jesus, who left his Holy Spirit here within me, I still believe. And as I wrote, I cried. Oh, man, I cried. I typed and cried until all the tears were gone and all the words were out. (sighs) Friends, you have your own final to take. Someday, sometime from now, your hands will sit on a metaphorical keyboard and this question will sit before you now that you're suffering now that you're hurting now that you're in the valley now that you're grieving now that you're set before your enemies now that you're aware in a more profound way of the reality of evil in your life now that you sitting here in this place what do you believe about God and I can't take your journey for you But may you believe. May you hold on to hope in the God who loves you. Yes, suffering is real. But we worship a God of hope. And may you hold those two things with one hope in Jesus Christ. And may we be a church that knows that hope springs from authentic lament. May you know the Father who carries you in your very worst of times. Let's pray now. Lord God, thank you for this message. and pray that it's a blessing to your people. God, may you be near to those low right now.
those suffering, those grieving. May your presence be available and felt by the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. Lord God, would you hold us together and would you be, allow us to be a church that continues to press into your hope and your love and your joy and your goodness despite the reality of suffering in the world. We love you. We trust you. God, we give you our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.